0: hi
1: hey how are you
0: Good. how are you
1: good good it's good to see you
0: yeah it's nice to meet you you started when i left well left i'm still there in online blackboard but you know not in body
1: yeah and you know um just because i know if we, we follow each other on social media I put people in your classes all the time, because I'm like, yeah, you know, she seems real cool. Oh, uh, thank
0: I know, you. I
1: know she teaches these classes, like, <laughs> you should take her, so, um, thank but you. yeah, I
0: appreciate that.
1: Yeah, well, you know, let's, let's just get right into it, because I, did, you know, I don't really know a whole lot about you, I know a little bit about you, I guess you're from Russellville, is that correct?
0: Yeah. So I was um, born and raised, went there, you know, all my school years to you know, Russellville and the family that I have left um, still lives in Russellville. So I still have a strong tie to that community. Uh, whenever I'm like in the little paper or whatever, I say, oh yeah, I'm from Russellville. So it's definitely my nostalgic hometown. Um, but I went to school at UCA Um, for education, art education and sculpture. Um, And then I was a a public school teacher for several years and got my MFA in art simultaneously while I was teaching. And then I've come back to get my doctorate. So I've been out of school about 10 years when I came back and was like, it's now or never. You know, so um, I'm in school now at the University of Kansas um, in the women, gender and sexuality studies doctorate program. Um, and this is my third year. I'm hoping to finish this year the dissertation, but we'll see the COVID, of course, has delayed any sort of in-person data collection. Um, so that's up in the air, but yeah, that's like my very short background blurb. Uh, my research in art making has always been about gender in art, identity in art, Um, I've always been interested in that. I did work in that when I was in the new media, or I guess it was called, yeah, something like new media program or new material studies program at UCA. It was brand new at the time. I can't remember what that class was called. And then I continued that in my MFA and here at my doctorate. So, um, but yeah, I'm definitely local, even though I live far away now. So still teaching at UACCM. Um, I've been teaching there since 2016. And I love it. It's a great atmosphere. You know, you work there. It's like super chill. And I taught at Perryville High School, but I taught like 7 through 12 art there for several years. And so I still have students from there in my classes at UACCM, which I find really comforting um, to, you know, have familiar faces or names in class again. So it's nice to be tied to the area. In a long-term way, you
1: know? Yeah, for sure, for sure. You know, I I grew up in Clarksville, so just just down the road from Russellville, and came here for my bachelor's and master's degree and started a business while I was in in college, which my podcast studios at at my business, like a, a a suite. It's got its own entrance and exit, but my wife and I run a martial arts academy here which I'm sure you've seen us post about, but um, you know, it's, I, I didn't really anticipate settling in the Rustville community, but here we are. And um, I really, I enjoy being here. I can't imagine living anywhere else. I like have traveled around the United States quite a bit over the last decade uh, and will continue to do so um, when, you know, there are fewer pandemics to deal with. But um yeah, you know it's a it's a great community to uh to have a business in and it's just up the road from Warrelton, so it's nice. What uh what what year did you graduate? So I saw the only reason I know you're from Russellville um was I saw you posting about like your high school reunion or something or oh
0: my god, yeah. Right? I was the class president, so I get the gift of planning that until I die, or oh, I guess man. fake my death. Um, but uh yeah, so I graduated in 2002 um, from <laughs> RHS. Uh, so I think I am a little older than you. Um, mm-hmm. But but yeah, uh, still, I've lived all over the state, um, mainly for teaching. I moved around a lot, taking a different a lot of different kinds of K-12 teaching jobs. Um, but yeah, I definitely... Arkansas is, is my home. I'm up here in the Midwest and I keep explaining to people, no, it's different. It's really different. (laughs) It's the South and they don't understand.
1: Yeah. Um, so you're in the, so you're, you're still teaching at Moralton. I guess, are you teaching at a couple or even a few different campuses while you're doing your your dissertation work or what's going on with that? So
0: as part of the funding for my um, doctorate, I teach two classes here and three classes at UACCM. So I'm pretty much full-time teaching and going. I have taught for a long time. I think this is my 15th, 14th, 15th year teaching. And so um, it is a lot of work. I'm not going to downplay the load. But at the same time, I'm very comfortable doing these things. You know, at UACCM, we usually have a 5-5 load. So it's quite similar. So here at KU, I teach within the gender and sexuality department. Um, I have helped redevelop a class called Sex, Gender, and New Media about how we as users use internet new media, social media apps, And then how that kind of co-constructs our identity. So there's like this relational back and forth between the push and pull of users and apps and things like that. And then I teach um, usually just other general courses. I've mainly just taught like 101 intro to gender up here. Um, And then at UACCM, I just teach Art of Preach right now, um, which is fine. I really love teaching Art of Preach because you have all these very first time students that are not familiar with the arts Um, but when I'm there in person I also taught like drawing and watercolor and art history and things like that so I actually like to have a variety of classes or it gets boring I mean you think about I've been teaching Art of at the university level since 2010 so it's like you got to reinvent this wheel you know even this semester I changed up my curriculum just to make it current and interesting and things uh, like that. So yeah, I teach up here and there. And I mean, ideally some year I would teach something like a women in art or uh, you know, queer art history or something like that. But I know that's very specialized. And so I'm gonna hold my breath for that but I can still develop my dream syllabi, you know, things like that.
1: Yeah, you know, dude, that's awesome. We have a professor here at the gym who teaches our hot yoga classes, Dr. Erin Claire. Oh, yeah, I've
0: met her a couple of times. Oh,
1: she's so great. But she, she, I was looking, she, she came on the podcast. Right. And, um, for some reason, uh, I guess just to give me information. Right. So I, and usually I don't have a problem talking with people, but she sent me a resume and like the list of the the classes that she teaches is truly amazing. Um, and that's awesome. I, that was one thing I wanted to ask you about was like the different courses that that you taught at the university level. And, um, Obviously, I think um, some one of my students had had you for either art appreciation or art history and was like, "Hey, Miss Trustee was talk- she was talking about some of the same stuff, you know, but um, I, you know my, uh, I really do like talking with art historians or, or reading what they had to say in, in different research, but also, particularly when it comes to Egypt. Uh, or Minoan art, right? Uh, I'm a huge. I really enjoy the history of Egypt, but um, yeah, it's just. A, and then also, my wife has a theater background, so it's interesting. Like with, her, she has a huge background in theater history, you know. And and then she got a history degree as well as a communication of theater. So, but it's just so cool. Um, and she did her senior seminar over women in martial arts, right? So that's a, a really cool. But yeah, I'll, I'll ask you some follow-up questions about your your research and and stuff in a, in a little bit. How, okay, so, you know, I will say my, my whole life, uh, and I'm going to, I'm pursuing this in 2021. This is something I'm going to add on to my repertoire, but I've always wanted to draw, right? And at what point did you know that you were... An artist that you, you know. I've seen some of the stuff that that is your artwork, and, and and I have some questions about that later. But when when did you know that you were going to be headed down this path? Because I have a lot of appreciation for people who are on a, a less conventional path. Because I myself am on a less conventional path with like being a, a history professor and a, a martial arts academy owner. Those are two things that I don't know. Everybody I knew was like, "What are you going to do with that?" You know. So but yeah, when, I.
0: I, people um, ask me, well, number one, you know, coming from Arkansas and I was the first person in my family to go to college. And so I get, what are you going to do with that a lot? In fact, I think my mother usually tells people I'm getting a doctorate in art history because saying that I'm getting a doctorate in American sexuality is just very upsetting. Um, And so I always joke that I went into gender studies because After two art degrees, I wanted something that I could really go straight to work with, you know, Um, which is absurd because it's very, it's all, you know, lofty humanities things. But I have always liked making stuff with my hands. Um, I was raised mainly by a single mom. Um, My dad, when I was very little, he was there and then in and out. And then there was this period of time when it was mainly just us. And then I have, have a, step, a stepfather who's, who's amazing, but we had this like formative time when it was just her and I, and it was like the eighties and early nineties. And so she sewed all of my clothes. I mean, all of those weird rompers that are in style now, we had those, we were matched in gingham with lace, you know, and stuff like that. And so I remember learning to sew and knit and crochet at a very, very young age. Um, And then after that, I guess it was just like I liked crafts and my mother was just actually really great to buy me craft supplies. I was always really surprised when I taught middle school that many children, their parents don't buy them craft supplies, which... I guess it's because they weren't interested, but I'm talking like scissors, construction paper, glue, markers, crayons, um, these things, this is like my shout out to listeners. Like even if you're not in, interested in that yourself or an artsy person, giving those to your children at a young age is really important. I have taught a few middle schoolers how to cut a circle out using scissors. And it's just like these, and, and, and they're great students. You know what I mean? So it's just like, Having you know these materials, even inexpensive materials, in your arsenal can mean a lot to someone who might want to explore it. But I was an only child, and I was uh, you know at my grandma's a lot and um, played by myself a lot as an only child. And so I just um, drew and colored and things for fun. I remember at a very young age looking at pictures of coloring books and copying them. And my father I did, had I did bought that
1: as well. I would yeah, yeah, and trace my trace them, you know. I would like, yeah, yeah,
0: trace. To
1: top of it, yeah.
0: Try to match. My father bought me a set of Compton's Encyclopedia, which we still have, but are useless now. And I would love to draw the pictures out of that. So, I think I just I liked the technical challenge of it, of copying. You know, like I wanted to to make it as precise as possible. Um, and so, yeah, I I think I just enjoyed it always. And then when I got to high school, um, I remember I finally, I was in the band, I was in the marching band, but at RHS, you can only take so many electives. So I decided, I think my senior year to drop out of band and go into art. And I'm glad because I got an art scholarship and I was really on the fence about whether I wanted to to go into computer programming as a major, which I love computer programming or art. And so I thought, you know what, i I don't want to make any money. <laughs> no, I didn't think that. I thought I'm going to go into what I love and I went into the visual arts. So for me it was it was a through line that that I've always had, but I strongly encourage you. I think that drawing is a skill that completely can be learned. I think that when we're little there's this idea that this myth that you're you're either born with it or you're not and that's not true. Maybe some kids have A better way of citing you know looking at something and and putting it down but it's practice it's hours and hours of practice and it's manual it's like tactile learning how tools react on paper um and so that's something that can be learned and that's why i love teaching drawing because i have the students draw a first drawing and a last drawing and we compare them and they really do amazing you know and that's why i love teaching drawing because you can see this Progression, so I definitely think that it can be taught. I think that you know, at eight or nine, kids start comparing their drawings and say, "Oh, my drawing's not as good as that person," and then they say, "Well, I'm not good at art." Or maybe their parents say, "Oh, well, that's just not your calling," or whatever. But if you're interested in it, I'm definitely feel like it. You can acquire that skill set a hundred percent. You know, even now, this last work I've been doing that I've been posting is colored pencil. I have never drawn portraits before in colored pencil and they are a new beast. <laughs> I always drew in pencil. In fact, like mechanical pencil you use for school. Um, and so I am now like learning colored pencil. Um, but for my dissertation, I'm, they are pushing me because my research is an abstract art to make more abstract work like sculpture. And I'm like, Oh, so that's like my next thing. I feel like it's uncomfortable, but it's, that's definitely a skill set that can be acquired, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah, and there's so, so many avenues to learn now. You know, I was I was thinking I just recent, this uh, past year signed up for the Masterclass website, which there's no there's no Masterclass for drawing or anything, unfortunately, but they have um, Ken Burns documentary filmmaking fantastic um just because i mean look we're recording video right now i'm gonna put this on the internet later uh i do the same thing for martial arts so but you you know youtube videos books um i even saw i was i was wondering how uh, beneficial they would be but i even saw a plethora of audio books on audible in relation to to drawing right And it's fascinating, like uh, uh, some of the martial arts books I have have, um, you can, you know, the illustrations are hand drawn, that's fascinating. So you've mentioned sculpture a couple of times um, and you you said you didn't get really into art in an educational level till your senior year in high school?
0: Yeah, so we at RHS, we, well, in middle school, I think we were able to take an art class um, finally. And I was really excited to do that. And then I don't think I had it again until
1: yeah.
0: maybe I was a junior. Maybe I had a junior year. I can't remember if I had it one or two years. Um, but I, but, you know, Russellville has the River Valley Arts Center. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always took classes there. And then in high school, I started teaching their camps and stuff, you know, as a volunteer. And then I've taught for them as an adult. Um, so my mother was really great about You know that's what I was interested in. I did dance when I was really little, and that was obviously not my thing, you know. Um, And so when I wanted to take art camps and stuff, we we did as much as as we could. Um, But yeah, I I mainly just love to do it on my own.
1: When did you start um, specializing in some of the things that you do presently? Like throughout your undergraduate, and I mean. how did that stack up?
0: So I took this class and like I said, I'm doing a horrible job because I can't remember the name of it, but it was with Liz Smith, who's still at UCA. She's a ceramics uh, professor, but now Holly Laws um, teaches it. It is like a new materials course of some contemporary materials. And that's why I went to UCA because I knew they had this. And then when I when I took it, it, it really changed Uh, my practice, my life. I mean, that's cheesy, but this is like the moment when I was like, this is exactly what I'm here for. This is resonating with me. And the whole point of this outlook, which is very contemporary art, is that materials, um, art materials, have inherent contextual meaning, right? We think of fabric in a different way. We think of, you know, have different associations with fabric or with metal, this is very gendered, right? Or with clay or with making sculpture out of very strange things like dirt, you know? And so I loved the idea that instead of representing something, you already had all of this meaning in the materials there that then you could repurpose in some way. Um, And so it was during that time when I also really felt that for me like this is very contentious in a different like different artists feel different ways but for me it's very important to make art that only speaks from a position that i'm familiar with so as a daughter or as um, a woman in the south um you know these things like i would not personally feel comfortable making some work about Blackness in the South. I'm not saying that's not valid, but um, maybe from my position of witnessing, you know, race in the South. But, you know, so I think that there's this um, vein of art that's almost like about embodiment where you're making from your own very specific position. Um, there was a controversy controversy in like 2015 or 2016 um, that happened where this Jewish woman who had a son she's an artist she made this painting um, of the Emmett Till photograph are you familiar with the Emmett Till photograph yes yes and so she made this painting and it got hung in a famous biennial I think the Whitney biennial and there was this was at the time of the very first Black Lives Matter protest and so there was this huge outcry why did this Jewish white lady make this painting of Emmett Till what right does she have to exploit the representation of a murdered Black child, right? And her argument was that she was also a mother. And so she had read something that Mamie Till wrote, and she thought about her son, and so this is why she made this painting, which is legitimate. But when you have like a young man in a shirt protesting, he stood in front of the painting, and on the back of his shirt it said Black Death Spectacle. right? So I feel very sensitive to representation politics, like who's saying what about whom and how. Um, and so that also kind of became part of my art making ethics at that time. Um, plus, for me, it also kind of limits the scope of, you know, instead of making art about everything, I'm going to be making art, not autobiographically, but in, in a pared down point of view. But so I did make work then about identity, and um, I'm trying to think like data, data and identity, like um, how department stores have your size on file, especially now with the internet, how the, you go to the, your doctor and they have all your medical records. What are these things, do these things add up? If you got all of your records from everywhere and put them together, does that make you? It doesn't, right? So, I was interested in this data collection and then when I went to my MFA, I ended up doing a, my final project about this similar kind of data collection. I was looking at Disney um, and how they had been trademarked colors for girls like Princess Kiss and like these stupid names anyway and what these uh, what again this data meant for teaching girls how to be girls, right? Um, Enculturating girls into a certain amount, certain genders and things like that. So my MFA was really honing in on what are the societal rewards for performing gender correctly and what are the punishments, right? So how are you rewarded for being typically a masculine male in the South or not? and same thing with me. Like if I perform a very feminine way in the South, and the South has very specific gender roles as we know if I do certain certain things politely and sweetly and all this, like what rewards do I get? And then if I don't, if I'm rude or blunt or rash or loud or all the things that I usually am, then what punishments, right? Oh, she's rude or, you know, we'll um, we'll not invite her or whatever. So I was really interested in these gender contracts socially in my master's program. So it's just like a, a through line of identity and then how that plays out in objects
1: fascinating so i've seen you post a fair amount of your artwork and i i enjoy seeing you post things that that you make and i i appreciate the themes that you choose right um just things i've seen you post on social media right so that in in addition to to what you just remarked on you know what are some other, uh, themes that you choose? And, you know, you mentioned like being a woman in the South. Um, I would say that you, maybe not, maybe not, but, um, have you, have you received like some pushback on some of, some of your stuff over the years, give in this, in this demographic, you know what I'm saying? Yes. Not, for, not from people like me, but from other people.
0: <laughs> not me, not me. <laughs> sure. Um, so, Uh, I think that earlier on when I was making things just about women, it was fine, but now in the last few years that I've been making things, um, maybe more supportive of like same sex partnerships or like, um, like the whole purpose is like, you know, Mm -hmm because lesbian history has been hidden traditionally, like how can we uncover that and things like this. So since I've been making this work, um, people in the South are interesting in the way they give feedback. So most of the time they don't say anything at all. And that's the way that you know that they're not into it. Um, Or they'll say, see that new work you're making. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and I'm just like, yes, you did. You know, and so we don't talk about it. So I have found that um, a majority of people uh, is that's the way they've gone. And I will say this: that I mainly post my work on Instagram um, because on Instagram I have had that account from kind of the beginning with the idea. Well, at first I was posting lots of pictures of my dogs, you know, because I love my dogs. Um, but then I was like. Well, you know, as I'm making this art, this is where this is going to go. And if people don't want to follow me here, it's fine. A lot of my old school, homeschool people on Facebook did not follow me on Instagram. This is going to be the safe or unsafe. We're going down this trail. So my Instagram is very like more in your face. You know, like I've been collecting these vintage photographs of uh, women, I don't know, like part of the interest for me is like, you don't know if they're a couple, you don't know if they're sisters, you don't know if they're friends, but that's because people wouldn't have labeled that. So like beginning in the beginning of the pandemic, I was posting like a picture of day and I ended up running out of my archive um, because there's not that many. Um, So Instagram is doing one thing and Facebook is doing something else. Um, Now these latest drawings um, are, you know, friendly, and so I don't mind posting them, and of course, I do post political things sometimes on Facebook, but I definitely know, like, people from elementary school are on Facebook, and, you know, my far-off relatives in wherever land are on Facebook, and so um, I keep Facebook censored in a way so that people don't call my mom, (laughs) and that also, just like, it's it's not necessary you know what I mean it's not necessary to have there I don't mind having two different things to do two different things I don't think that's problematic so I would say there hasn't been pushback in, in a like a up in your face way but I can tell that you know people might be ready for me to be done with this series <laughs> like are you gonna be doing something else soon are you? So, um, and yes, I've this, as soon as I have access to my saws, I will have to make some abstract work and then it will just look like a cube and no one will have a problem with it, you know? Uh, so it'll be friendly and benign and all of those things. Um, but yeah, uh, so it's been interesting, but oh, well, you know, and I have had, you know, I am part-time at UACCM now, and I'm trying to get back full-time, um, but I don't know if I will get back full-time, and so there has been some of my peers in academia say, your art is too overtly about sexuality and gender, and you need to dial it back because people will not hire you. And
1: That's, and yeah, that was my next question, is if yeah. it had affected you professionally.
0: So maybe it is. I don't know. Um, I think right now we are in a zeitgeist of diversity embracing. Everybody's hiring a diverse something, something. So I have seen some positions specifically for diversity that I could apply for this and that. Um, So maybe, maybe it is, maybe people look at my art and think, oh dear. Um, But I, I don't know. I've not gotten that feedback, but You know, like I said, I, will shift my work to, uh, be a partner to my dissertation writing purposely. And so that'll be a different body of work. I think that the dissertation plus this abstract work about gender will be more academic, academic in all realms, not craft, because I work in craft mainly now with embroidery and stuff like that. But I think it'll be clean in a way that's hireable. Don't think that's right like, nice, but, like, I think that that's the reality of academia, Mm
1: -hmm. so. So, on on this topic, right, I think that with some of these um, themes that we're discussing, um, lesbian couples or, or whatever it is, it's, like, you know, I can see where uh, some people would be. Uh, you know, like yeah, okay, obvious. Those people would face discrimination. You know, it, it just it, it makes a little bit of sense. You know, to to like to someone like me, I'm like yeah. I know some some Christian people that are, that would hate on that. You know, I try and <laughs> pray, pray it away. But also something else that um, you know, someone who's on the podcast recently, Dr. Kelly Jones. She teaches um, Southern women's history and Mm -hmm. um, several different women's history courses. Another friend of mine, Marie, we went to grad school together. She teaches that. And one thing that they raise awareness about, and I've seen it too since um, Vice President Harris was announced, is the discrimination that women face in like on social media and in that realm, and it is like that is something that I've become more hyper aware of and it, recently that really blows my mind. And what blows my is, you know, they'll go to political posts or something by you know like the governor's office or something like that, and they'll grab a bunch of screenshots and they'll they will share them, and it. I, you know, I want to say it's just kind of like, oh, yeah, it makes sense with people discriminating. Like I can like, yeah, okay. I know people that do that discriminate against people that are gay, you know, that, that are homosexual. Right. So, you know, but it's like the, to the degree of which I, that I've been seeing things is uh it blows my mind. I mean, just to put it in lay in lay terms you know but like what's have you faced things like that as well because i say like that's like two things you're doing that you know i can only empathize with by talking to you about it and
0: yeah i haven't had i mean like you know like i said with with the works content i feel like um this current current series content um I feel like, you know, I guess people who haven't liked it or don't want to see it on Instagram just don't follow me, you know, or I guess people on Facebook wouldn't like or, you know, like it. Or I have not had any vocal outspoken people be like, this is bad. Um, but, you know, being a person facing sexism or things like that, I mean, it's latent. I can't tell you how your experience versus, you know, using social media or something like that is different from mine because I only have mine. But I saw this survey recently and maybe you saw it. It was about, speaking of teaching, it was about how students uh, review or evaluate female professors versus male professors. I have seen that. It was insane. Yes. So, but the thing is, I have been, a female teaching in higher ed, again, since 2010, I don't know how my evals are different from yours. I know, like, how they are, and I know that, you know, when students say that they want me to correct something, um, I take it to heart, because to me, none of the things that have been said have been crazy. Like, I, you know, we, we had too much writing, or I didn't like this text or you know like nothing i've read in them has ever been like this is sexist you know but then like reading that thing i was like what kind of reviews are dudes getting like doing the same job or even these nuanced interpersonal interactions in the classroom you know like how are they pushing back against me versus how they're pushing back against you. Um, But one thing I have noticed being in um, gender and sexuality studies, like we talk a lot about not only that, but like how, you know, uh, black uh, faculty, black female faculty, female faculty or faculty of color from other nations, like cultures, how those microaggressions happen to them in the classroom and it is very present and that's one thing that i have not experienced in that way because i am a white you know american like native english speaker person and um some of my uh, peers who are not have had lots of other issues with students um, I know UACCM. We have a largely white population. It's similar up here at KU. I would say the difference is the socioeconomics. Like at UACCM, we have more lower middle incomes, and up here, KU is is like more of the elite medical type school. So we have some higher incomes. Um, But like these things, I'm sure exist, and um, I'm aware, you know, about them. But part of it is you don't know sometimes how much it's impacting you because you don't know the whole story you know what I mean Mm -hmm. so um as as an educator in the k-12 like stuff I have had certain bosses that were sexist and said and and did some things that I disagreed with but overall you know education is predominantly filled by women um and so it's interesting not that women can't be sexist or racist obviously they can be all of those things um but like uh so i'm sure it's out there but for myself um it has been more i'm sure like latent and i haven't noticed as much and like i said being specifically in the south it's more of omission people will not say something and then say something behind your back. Like one of my relatives saying, I ran into so-and-so, and she said she saw your artwork, but that was the story. And I mean, you're like, well, I know what that conversation was about, but it's not a conversation, you know? So I feel like in the South people just be like, and then that's, you know, you get it all there, but you know, people don't speak Southern. They don't know what's just happened. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question. But um, in, I mean, obviously, in gender studies, we talk about sexism in, in the academy all the time. We talk about it in politics. We talk about it in the pay gap. I mean, you know, this is what we study. But asking me personally, how have I experienced that? You know, I probably have. I, you know, I haven't. <laughs> You know, I don't know. I mean, besides some random dude be like, hey girl or whatever, it's like, no. You know, like, but like not in the professional type way. I've not terribly noticed.
1: One thing I believe it was from that survey you were referencing that I saw that was interesting. If this is the same one would be with uh, female professors, educators, getting comments on their dress and evaluations whereas I could I've never got a comment on like my my shirt you know from students that is I I Mm -hmm. was you know there was a brief period where um we were revolted we were in open rebellion because they were trying to make us tuck our shirts in oh Uh,
0: no where at
1: at UACCM yeah oh my god I know but as soon as um
0: not tucking my shirt in
1: I know, I know. I mean, that right? one guy
0: just wears camo every day. So I'm just like, until you can get him stopping from wearing shirt and pants, that's all camo. No, you, you got nothing from me. I can't, <laughs> I can't help you.
1: Hey, well, you know, we got a new a vice chancellor and oh yeah, we were in a meeting with him about something totally unrelated. And Trey's like, we don't want to tuck our shirts in. Like, he, and he looked at me and he's like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to say it, man. I'm just going to do it. And like, then just bust it out. And like, we're talking about something totally unrelated. And I was like, yeah, you know, he's right. We don't.
0: <laughs> this is our one thing. No, I have never had any comments about my dress. I mean, but something that's common is I rarely wear makeup. And so the days that I do wear makeup, the students will be like, you're wearing makeup or if I've worn it, say the first few days, which I usually do to pre- pretend I'm professional, and then I don't wear it any after that, they'd be like, "You're tired. You look tired." You know, but like that's just a general thing about being a woman out in the world with makeup is people will constantly tell you about your makeup or your your hair. Oh, your hair looks good today. It's like, I washed it. You know, like or whatever. Like, but. Um, I think, I will say this, I get a huge pass on my wardrobe because I'm the art teacher. And this has always happened. I can wear, especially in the K-12, I could wear like a onesie or something. I mean, I didn't. But if I'm disheveled or kooky or mismatched or whatever, people are like, that's just Normal. the art teacher. Yes. But I will say in the last years I taught high school, I switched to being a history teacher that did not fly. Suddenly I was a core subject and my shit had to match. Like it was like, you know, um, your stuff ties into our old sat scores or whatever. Like it was a different ball game. And I was like, man, this is a whole different dynamic in the system with core teachers and elective teachers in a good, in good, like finally you're listening to my opinion, but also then in bad, like suddenly I have got to, you know, do things differently, but that was interesting, but no, the, like I said, I don't, I've, I've had one experience in the classroom. I will say this. Um, one of the things I can maybe brag about or say is I've always been complimented by my administration for having great rapport with my students. Um, and so, um, I know when to pick my battles because I taught junior high for six years, you know, like I, I know how to roll with things. And so if, students are rude I just redirect or like you know so not that I wouldn't notice it I'd be like well that was rude but at the same time um I'm not a confrontational person in that way like I can de-escalate things very quickly and just you know move on with business at hand and I'm also pushy like in the classroom I want to talk about certain things I remember one student he took every single classifying, and then he said, "I just want to let you know, when I'm an English professor, I'm only going to teach the men because I taught like I make sure to include women and people of color." And I was like, "So you're going to be like every other English professor that's ever taught English?" Like, he's like, "I'm going to be teaching Melville all the time," and I'm like, "Okay, dude." Like, so I I I do make sure that my courses are very inclusive which I have found that students at UACCM, some of them appreciate and some of them don't. But you know, those four students there, we have a lot of students that are trans. We have a lot of queer students at UACCM. You know, I always helped out with the Prism Alliance when I worked there in person. Um, They appreciate that. So, I mean, everyone needs to know a broad art history, not just the the white western canon but you know what it's really for those people be like I see you you know we only have 10 to 15 to 20 maybe kids of color in my class per semester it's like I want to make sure that you're seeing that your art history is here too you know um and yeah I've had students be very outspokenly rude about that curriculum planning there but it's not too bad I mean they need to learn it but you know, they
1: need to get over it too, so. Yeah, I mean, that is something that every semester I definitely integrate more. Like this semester, at the end of the American Revolution, I'm doing, I've, I've put together a little presentation about women and the revolution. I've I, Whereas it before, it was just kind of like a heading in my notes and like this, this could be almost, a, um, almost an entire lecture, you know? So, <clears throat> I mean, but that is um, something that, you know, you wouldn't think that this stuff we're talking about would be controversial either, but it is. You know, I saw um, a proposed bill for here in Arkansas. I
0: just saw that. It's so uh, awful.
1: It's terrible, right? Yeah.
0: I mean, it's it's based off Trump's thing where he was doing a crackdown on universities for teaching
1: sixteen actual 19.
0: U.S. history yeah. so that all things that are considered controversial i.e. anything that is focused on minorities or problems is is out you know which i don't hope that bill doesn't pass but that's just i mean but you remember maybe you don't but like back in 2014-15 nationally they redid the curriculum for um ap history, U.S. history, mm-hmm.
1: yeah, yeah. and
0: the push, it was brilliant. It was very, you know, in early America, you definitely focus on slavery more, then you focus on women more, and you focus um, on, you know, uh, Native Americans mm-hmm. more, and the indigenous population, things like that, things that need to be highlighted, but there was this huge pushback in Oklahoma, and, and I think one other state that was like, this is unconstitutional. It's like, it's our history, like, we all know as educators, we have like, you know, 16, however much, like how many weeks to get in so much amount. And it's up to us or the book or the curriculum advisor to curate. And that curate, that curate, I can't talk, the curation of material is a power act in itself. So what we're highlighting and when we're highlighting, that's us or them or someone editing out saying, this is important, this is not. This can be erased, it can be forgotten, it can be overlooked. And so it's a very important to curate our courses in a way that, I mean, it's not gonna all be equ- equitable. You can't teach all of US history in two semesters. you know. So what can we teach? What nuggets can we leave them with that are gonna help them best navigate 20, 2000 and whatever year it is, 2021, um, you know? So yeah, it, it shouldn't be controversial, but it is because finally we're saying, you know, this canon is problematic. How can we make it better, like more reflective? But yeah, it's awful, that bill. I hope it doesn't pass. And yeah. that dude on there says he's an educator. I don't know if he is. I'm like, are right, you though.
1: Well, you know, um, here, like my... Do you familiar with where Back to Basics Fitness Center was in Russellville? Yes. So that's, that's the building that our gym's at now. Um, okay. So just like right across the street from campus. But the tech uh, got petitioned, uh, the history department, um, and maybe other departments. But I know because I know several historians come and train here at the gym, that uh, for professors to submit any materials they had covered in class over the 1619 project
0: oh yeah i knew that was very controversial i mean
1: i i i started bringing it up um just like hey you know they say this pretty interesting huh (laughs) you know and then uh and then i'm like we'll keep talking about stuff like this as we move forward to the civil war (laughs) um but you know I, i will say um some of that history like Emmett Till and Mm -hmm. continuation of that stuff it's uncomfortable but I I just I feel it's so necessary and I I I integrate it more and more and more it's like okay it's that's never the stuff that I'm trying to trim out you know it's like Mm -hmm. as a matter of fact um I added a whole extra assignment. I did a slavery in Arkansas research assignment that I really
0: interesting.
1: R- really enjoy it. Um, okay.
0: Well, I'm gonna stop you right there and say there's okay. actually this book that was compiled during the like Great Depression. The it was slavery. like Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love that. Oh my so gosh. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, you know, and there, there's not all of them. But uh, a decent sized collection of them are available digitally for free. Online. Oh, nice. I didn't
0: right. know that.
1: Yes. And so, yes, that's um, and I have a link to those um, that I provide. Right. But there's a lot of great just the slavery in Arkansas. So then I put together sort of a, a slavery in the United States assignment that sort of runs from colonial Virginia to during the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Um, i copied over my arkansas folder so they could just see i'm like this is arkansas you know you guys mm-hmm. need to go broader than this i was like if there's this much for arkansas imagine how much there is for the united states but i was like but you can use arkansas you can do some comparing and countries compare you know arkansas to virginia or louisiana or you know because uh or deep south state because arkansas not necessarily a deep, deep South state. Mm-hmm. Um, I always bring up to my students that Arkansas sent m- more troops to fight for the Union than any other state aside from Tennessee uh, is a Southern state. So that's, it's interesting. We didn't secede until the third call either. So that was a, another interesting point. But, you know, I, I just want to open, I want to cover more like, and it's like, okay, well, 1619, I was, and now it's like a controversial thing. Yeah. You know. <laughs> And, you know, what's fascinating, my friend, uh, I have a, a friend, she's a, she has a background in folklore, uh, Meredith. Um, she runs a nonprofit and um, wor- works for another nonprofit that's like the River Valley Learning Alliance. But she was talking about Tom Cotton because he's he's a big proponent of this kind of stuff. And she's from Dardanelle, graduated high school at Dardanelle. Um, and she was like, This guy had the same history classes as me and I, how does he think this way, you know, but, um, it, that, that is a a fascinating topic too, you know, is that, um, like I cover the crucible and tie that into the red scare and tie that into some of the things we've talked about already, you know, but, um, it, it is interesting how some people take a total opposite point of view and like, oh, we can't ever make the United States look bad. That's unpatriotic. That's unconstitutional. It's a, it's a strange time. The time that I've likened and, and other historians have to like a, a, a third Red Scare type event, you know, and in, in which people are being persecuted, canceled for different reasons. Some rightfully so.
0: I mean, I think there's just a lot of fear at the heart of things. Um, fear about uh, the demographics changing in the US, fear about a shift away from the ev- evangelical church with younger people leaving, um, fear about, you know, who are Americans that is changing and what does that mean, you know. Um, fear that certain ideologies are going to be overlooked or looked behind, like left behind and things like that. And in order to really properly examine the historical moment or any historical moment, you have to look at all the things and it is uncomfortable, but the process is necessary. So I think part of this is avoiding discomfort, um, doing the hard work uh, to... Just let, let the dust settle and see what things are, you know, and I am definitely a, a proud uh, American who cares about this country, obviously. Um, and so from my position, these questions or questioning is all intended for best purposes, right? Exactly. Um, and I exactly. think, you know, I grew up very religious in the Southern Baptist Church and it's the same thing there um i think asking questions of one's faith is purposeful right um, because i think all of these things you're navigating and um you're finding out your position and you're finding out like truths and not truths or opinions and things like that so um, there's a book that i read recently called female husbands and you were talking about women in the civil war it has a long history of people who were born women but then lived out their lives as men and some of these people were definitely men their whole lives some took a choice and a chance like during the revolutionary war or the civil war and dressed as men to serve i i have a hard time you know labeling i i do have the book has great stories this the woman who wrote it i can't remember her name she obviously did an amazing archival project so i want to give kudos to the rich stories and the newspaper articles the problem i have with the book is her use of language um she often labels people as these kinds of people as transgender, which I think is a 20th, 21st century term, you don't, it's it's improper to back label because we don't know how these people identified. We don't know how they understood their own gender. All we have is the documents showing that they were born female and then how they lived was different from the gender expectations of that time. But there should be some good nuggets in there for stories for that. There's also an excellent book about colonial, um, I think it's the Carolinas. It might just be North Carolina. It's an in-depth case study of how, because early North Carolina, I think it was North Carolina, might be South, was late to fully be civilized or governed there was a lot of like backwater things the, that the
1: north was more back backwoodsy okay. yeah
0: yeah so this book I'll have to tell you the name of it later it is brilliant because this woman looks at how all of these people were having very unruly race and gender relations with one another and how because this propriety of the church and of the state had not fully come in this period of you know, inner marriage or different identifying was able to go on longer and had this nice document. And it's really beautiful at showing how race is used up to prop up, used to prop gender norms up and, you know, vice versa, how, you know, race is used to solidify whiteness. And yeah, it was really a brilliant book, but I'll have to let you know the name yeah, later. Yeah, definitely. I post it with this, but Yeah, so I'm definitely very interested. I mean, I love U.S. history. If I ever teach history again, I want to be U.S. history. Um, But like, these things are all very interesting and important. And when you read them, you're like, makes you feel better about living now because now is messy, and you're like, oh, but it was always messy, you know. So
1: messy, yeah. It's
0: comforting, you know. So
1: that's like I've I've brought this up. uh, You know, I've. I've never heard the term unprecedented so many times in my life and is in the last year and I'm kind of like, well, not really. This (laughs) has happened before. (laughs) Stuff like this has happened before in the 68 and anyway, but, um, you know, I will say like this has become alarming um, with the pandemic is that the Spanish flu being roughly two years, and like fortunately we have the vaccine now, and, and numbers in Arkansas are trending downwards the last several days. But um, over four hundred thousand deaths in roughly a year. The Spanish flu, I believe, was uh, it was less than six hundred fifty thousand in roughly two years, um, and with the vaccine, we might not eclipse that number. But um, man, that is just. Uh, you know everybody initially was saying it wouldn't be that and here we are you know and and that's that's very interesting that's what's been on my mind uh kind of all this week you know it's it's it's, uh so you know I mean this is this is a messy year but it's like that you know 1918 not in our lifetime but I you know I think there's like a meme or some sort of social media post out there that's like person that was born in like 1900 what they you know world war one the spanish flu the great depression Uh, i mean and it just goes on and on. world war ii uh korea vietnam like if they lived to be you know like 100 years old what all they would have experienced and you know i I think that maybe our lives are going to be that way too you know we had uh 9 11 we've uh, had wars in the middle east you know that's i tell people uh, frequently that that's that's gonna be for our generation what vietnam was for like our parents generation mm-hmm. you know and many- multiple
0: recessions
1: <laughs> yeah yeah like,
0: i mean just yeah um, i think that millennials get uh this kind of blame but it's like I saw a figure the other day that was like millennials have one fourth the wealth that their parents did at the same time. It's just like we're navigating massive amounts of debt and things of that nature. But I think one thing that I think a lot about with the pandemic is unfortunately these crises, I think, reveal um, institutional and systemic issues that are there, but make them worse. So people who are really, having the brunt of the pandemic, both financially and health wise are people that were already at other risk for things, you know, in the country. And um, it's it's awful. And I think I get very frustrated when there isn't a consideration for these kind of differences, you know, um, how certain laws you pass them thinking, oh, well, they're going to be sweeping when really only certain parts of the population get the brunt, unfortunately, or the benefit of them. And so I think uh, the pandemic has really, not that we didn't know these things were, the inequities were already there, but has like made them worse. Mm. Um, So I want to see the data as it continues to come out, you know, When we talk about the people who have died or the people that have long-term health, what the demographics of those people are. Because I have a feeling, you know, from what we've seen so far, unfortunately, um, it's a lot of, you know, a lot of lower income people of color, black people, Hispanic people, things like that. And it's just really awful because when we come out of this, unless some major changes happen, there's not been fail-safes to boost those people back up like they weren't there before they're not going to be there now not that our mm-hmm. healthcare system isn't already sucky but like for them specifically other barriers to wealth you know accumulation and things like that going down a tangent but that's what I think about with the pandemic is um just these horrible inequities that um it's making worse
1: yeah it is it's highlighting things and I you know I think there's connections there with all of the conspiracies we've seen over the last year i mean it's uh it ties into a lot of things and then like within institutions outside of uh healthcare, like with within our educational system you know it's interesting to me that for example like um the college where we work is booming right now but arkansas tech across the street from where i'm sitting is Had 32 or 34 professors that were that are retiring. Um, and they're not, I was told last week they're not refilling or replacing any of those positions, they're just going to do the same load with limited staff. That's
0: what I've heard,
1: you know. And some of those are professors I had when I was there, two of them are, and um, you know, and I know people retire and people move on, but like this is a direct correlation, like they were offered early retirement or, you know, kind of, kind of bought out of the game. And, you know, that's, that's just, it's sort of an an interesting byproduct. but it's, I think a lot of campuses are struggling financially across the country. And then it's like, we have, uh, okay. So here's one thing we can talk about. It's kind of current event that I've thought about a couple of times. I thought about before on my way here is like the student loans right? Like, so that just kind of being all interconnected, but I'm paying off my student loans like a year faster because of the pandemic. If, if, as long as I survive the pandemic, you know, um, which I anticipate that I will, but I will say like everything, yes, people at risk or have comorbidities or dying, but my wife was in excellent health and she, she got hit hard by COVID. She wasn't in the hospital or anything, but she's 28 years old. And it was rough on her. We, at one point, she was having issues breathing. And we were, we were concerned, and it kind of passed that day. But um, you know what? Uh, you know, you getting a PhD right now, um, and myself, you know, dropping out of college three times before I finally went back when I was twenty three, and <laughs> and getting a master's degree. Um, I acquired, you know, some some debt especially in grad school and then before that like they had this weird rule where you're like until you're 24 they go off your parents income so I couldn't get any Pell Grants or anything like that but have has student has what's going on with student loans affected you in any way or um, have you been fortunate like my wife who's way smarter than me and she doesn't have any student loans because she's just always got her education paid for
0: so I feel I don't have any student loans, and I feel like it has been uh, luck, God. I, I will tell you this, my undergrad was mo- mostly paid for by scholarships, but the smidge that I had, like by the end, it was fully paid for. The first few years, I think we paid like 1000 or $2,000 a year. My parents paid for that for me. My dad died when I was very young. And my mom saved his social, social security for when I went to school and she used it like some for her, but then, you know, like as you would need it, but for the most part, she said, this is Rachel's school fund. Well, I did not use that for my undergrad. So we still had it for me. And so when I went back to my MFA, there was no funding available for that. There was no like work loans or whatever. And so I took my whole savings. I at that time. I had uh bought a house and you know obama had that first time home buyer credit Mm -hmm. yeah so i took all that it was like ten thousand dollars and then my grandma had some money set aside for each of the grandkids i got that or like i took everybody's stuff and paid slowly for my master's program and then this is um paid for well this has a stipend With teaching, but if I didn't have the work at UACCM, I would not be afloat. You know, I have to have both. And if I was not going to continue to get to work there, I don't know if I would have done this because my sticking point was I don't want loans. So while I am fortunate, I know that I am very rare. I am the only one of my friends that I know that doesn't have debt. And while I'm grateful, like I also know that this is because. My father died and left, you know from his Social Security, and then my grandmother had was able to save money for me. So I, I'm gonna give full credit to my grandma for saving. and then like, I don't know, we don't credit you know your dad, but like it's like it was because of these series of circumstances that I am debt free. Um, if these things hadn't happened, I don't because I'm so frugal, I probably would not have gotten into higher ed because I would have been so scared. You know, being a, a K-12 teacher, I made usually 35 to $39,000 a year, you know, how would I have been able, like, I was able to save some doing that, obviously, but not enough to pay for this, you know, all of this. So, um, yeah. So the student loan, I want, I want them all to be forgiven. And I know some people paid them off. Like, I don't, like, I just, I think that, you know, seeing my friends and the amount of, debt they're under from these loans, and then the high interest rates and things like that, it's, it's insurmountable. And if you do want people to go on and to buy houses or to participate in an economy in a way that you saw past generations, you're going to have to do something about the debt. Um, even though it doesn't, you know, I'm not in it, you know, my peers, so many of them are. And so yeah, I think that it's a major problem. Um, the cost of living's gone up and, you know, the wages have not been equivalent. I mean, there's so many reasons why the wealth accumulation is not the same as it was like, you know, especially like post-World War II. It's like here, military grant, military grant, have a house and, you know, wherever, you know, like all this stuff. And so not able to get a foot a foot down. But I i mean, I'm interested to see. I think, honestly, the Biden administration is going to do something. I don't think they're going to do the whole thing and, and erase it all. I think they're going to be like, there's $10,000, uh, which is good. But like, say you have $100,000 in debt. I don't know. You went to, you know, doctor school or something. However, like that's a drop in the bucket. It's like not even anything, you know? Yeah. So, um, it, I mean, it's something, but I do like the programs, you know, in Arkansas, they have some programs where if you're a teacher and you work in certain districts, or if you're in healthcare, like, or you're a therapist and you work in more rural areas where there was a, I don't know if it still exists. It was under Obama, but a loan repay, like payback Mm -hmm. program, where if you did that for like five years, your loans would be paid off. Anything, all of it, do all of it. Like, you know, so but yeah, Uh, that
1: is, (laughs) I know several people that have done that. Um, some of them moved to like the Delta to, um, to teach at schools. And I want to say that maybe Lamar at one point was one of those schools you could teach. at. I could be wrong about that, but you would go teach at certain schools in the state and you would be eligible for like a loan forgiveness. I think we'll see more programs like that. I know they announced that, um, I was just reading a Forbes article right before we started podcasting. Um, I know they announced you're doing eight months of additional zero interest. That's been just the biggest factor for us because we do the the gym here is very successful. Um, so a vast majority of my income from Moralton, we just pay on my student loans. And it's it's moving fast, you know. And then we haven't paid interest since the pandemic began essentially. And then eight more months of that, like it's knocked it probably a year off just with that uh, interest. So that's going yeah. to be exciting.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. I saw that about the interest today, but I, I didn't read the specifics. I just saw a tweet. So I was like, good. I hope it's forever, <laughs> but I didn't read into it.
1: <laughs> did, did, um, did I see you share something about Bernie's little mittens?
0: oh (laughs) burn i noticed him up there in the inauguration it looked like he was like no it's like i would like to see where no one else is seated anywhere near me like you know way up there looking angry and cranky and you know i was like he would probably wear the same outfit if it was him that was president you know what i mean it'd be the same thing um oh yeah i i really like uh bernie he wasn't i was an elizabeth Warren girl but um i appreciate you know bernie has made a huge impact on the left in general so Mm. tons of kudos to him he keeps dragging him dragging him to the left dragging him towards progressive policies and like keep going with your mittens all of them keep doing it bernie
1: yeah oh man um he won the internet with that for sure there's um there's this other you know that meme um it went viral, but it went viral in like every community. So like jujitsu is a pretty niche community, right? But that it's like, once again, I am asking for you to, but like there were a, a ton of jujitsu memes it's like new student in class. Once again, I am asking you to show the technique one more time. But, you know, but just like all of the the jujitsu memes I see or MMA memes I see with Bernie in them are hilarious. Um, Remember when he was ran for president the first time, there was uh, a page I followed. Maybe you didn't. But it was called like Bernie Sanders Dank Meme Stash. <laughs> and it was just a bunch <laughs> of dank Bernie Sanders memes. And that was in like 2016. You know, so. Feeling the oh, burn. Man.
0: No, no, I, I uh, missed that. Do you use memes in your class?
1: Um,
0: There's been this huge push. Like every time I go to... <laughs> Sorry, somebody's knocking the door. That's
1: me. It could be (laughs)
0: Um, As soon as, like, every time I go to a professional development, every time I go to a professional development, they're like, use memes. Have kids make memes. And I'm like, I am too old. I appreciate memes. I don't want to participate in their propagation. Like, I don't, I, just I like don't want to, them. I don't want to put them on my PowerPoints. I don't want to have an activity where, like, I had a professor in this doctoral program this semester that was like, feel free for your weekly discussion to post a meme. And I was like, what? We're talking about post-humanism. I don't want to put a meme up. Like, so I get it. I mean, the young people will love the memes, but some of these trends, I just, I'm old and cranky and I'm like, how about let's, let's not have a meme, you know?
1: I have sometimes, I've done this a few times. I'll have my synchronous students send an emoji representative of their current mood. That's helpful. Which everybody seems to enjoy. So
0: I, you know, I have not tried the synchronous thing yet. I've only just been online, but I did like some of their tips during that last professional development about the yeah, emojis and polls and things. I was like, I'm gonna remember that for yeah, if I, I ever th- have to do this, because I don't know if I will.
1: Polls are a good idea. I need to start, I need to integrate. <laughs> I need to start doing my pretest as is technically I think a survey in Blackboard to, I don't mind grading them on the post-test, but now I have to like go back to my grade book and like exempt the grade out and be sure they still get 10 points for doing it. That way I can extrapolate the data later. But yeah. So, but you know, that's just, that's one cool thing about, this is my third full-time year there. And each year I've really integrated a lot more of the features that Blackboard offers. And I'm, I'm excited to do more like, for example, synchronous now. What I do is, I uh, for example, my Tuesday, Thursday US 1 class, I record the live stream. Mm-hmm. And they can, they can download it. And I do it in my Monday, Wednesday, Friday class. But I can always fit about two lectures worth of material into that Tuesday, Thursday class. Then I share that lecture in Blackboard. I just copy it to the Monday, Wednesday, Friday section and it's one video in each. Oh,
0: that's it,
1: nice. You know, and it's it's just basically a screen share of me and my PowerPoint and the lecture and the audio. So I don't have to go bother with um, doing audio over a PowerPoint or planning another time to record. It's there when I want to do online. So that's kind of where I'm at is I'm, I'm kind of looking at, it, at my classes in a way that it's like, online, synchronous, face-to-face, I provide lecture notes, I update them religiously, PowerPoints, I update them, so I mean, it's, it's, just I'm starting to see kind of the, the, the payoff of of all of that, and it's, it's nice, because even though I, I, I have to do less, it allows me to have time to do more, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of labor up front, especially when you're putting a brand new class together, but then after that, it's, Like, I mean, there's still work each semester to kind of update and tweak and stuff, but it's really able, like you said, you can perfect it more over over time. You're nice. I don't provide lecture notes to my students. Like when I, well, I mean, in the, in my online classes, I don't lecture, like your text, those are your lecture. That's what you need to read. And, but like when I was in person and I lecture, like I write on the board, like key points, but yeah that's that's all the notes you get because I'm usually lecturing in tandem with the book or some other sort of text but I'm like too bad but yeah I don't know what kind of state I will reemerge in and fall I know in fall I'll teach in person somewhere here or there or you know somewhere but I'm not sure what what the state of things will be like so
1: yeah yeah it's uh well hopefully we you know have a good 2021 and it's uh things keep keep improving for everyone that that would be great (laughs) so i hope so yeah well this has been an awesome conversation no shortage of um back and forth so
0: yeah lots of topics
1: yeah i know i and i knew there would be uh like i said i've just i've i've followed you online a little bit and um I see also you kind of engaging with Trey quite a bit, Mm -hmm. uh, Trey McCool. So I've got to have him, you know, he has not been on the podcast.
0: Oh no, you definitely Uh, have to have him on the podcast. We've
1: talked about it a time or two. He lives in Greenbrier and he wants to come to the studio and to the gym when he does it. So we might have to do it over the summer, but we're, we're going to get together and, uh, Ray Trower is going to come on. We're going to listen to vinyl records while he comes on, um, during the, when the pandemic first started, I went to his house in the mornings because my fitness center was closed down. I was using his row machine and we were listening to the, to the band's vinyl collection
0: Nice
1: during, during our workouts. It was nice, <laughs> but well, you know, maybe, um, you know, I'll, I'll keep, um, I'll keep following along, but, uh, keep me posted. Like if, when you get your, um, when you complete your dissertation, um, maybe we can have you back on, Um, if you're going to be doing like a defense uh, like
0: yes so I don't know like originally I was trying like ideally last year we had said oh it'll be this spring but then it's just like you know like everything uh, exploded and so I think I'll probably be graduating in like fall And so I think my defense will be fall sometime. I mean, maybe I'll get it done really quickly in summer and then I'll do it immediately in fall or something. But yeah, I already have the foundation two out of the three chapters written. And so, um, yeah, I'd love to come back on and and chat about it, but it's a very obscure topic. My dissertation is on a very new, say very new in the last decade, um, a genre of art called queer abstraction. Um, and so I was interested in it because when you go to the museum and you see abstract work you're like it's blobs and stuff you know what I mean but there's all these claims being made about it like what it's sp- supposed to do and how it's an extension of the body or of the experience or how it's supposed to affect you as the viewer and you're supposed to be like you know, changed or impacted by this thing some way, but when it comes down to brass tacks, it's still just like blobs or whatever, you know? And I want, I want it, I want it to succeed. Like I'm cheering it on, but um, I think my dissertation is going to be like, okay, wh- why is this popular now? What is its purpose? And what are the limitations in a productive way? And, you know, how can we kind of critically analyze this? Cause so far the texts about it have been like, it's great. And I'm like you know I don't know I've done some interviews with people looking at the work how do you feel about this work what do you think it is and they're like I don't know you know so it's just like your life changed you know it's like no Um, so yeah I'd love to come back on and talk Um, I mean who knows what kind of things will happen between now and fall but maybe I'll get more data collection or something done I have no idea but Anyway, but yeah, thank you so much for having me on and and for the conversation. I look forward to meeting you in person some year, um, yes. when I'm back on campus, hopefully.
1: Yeah, definitely. If you're you're ever in the neighborhood, drop by. Um, you know, or if you uh, find yourself back in uh, you know back in Arkansas permanently, cool. Um, so you just you just li- living there just to finish out your dissertation work. You moved to Kansas just for that. Is that?
0: So yeah, I I moved here, like the coursework, I tried so many different things. I was trying to stay, you know, because I worked the whole time I was doing my MFA. So I was like trying to do the same thing here. But doctoral programs are like, you have to come and you have to do this like intense coursework. And the only, like I talked to the people at the U of A, the history department, and they were not a good fit for my research. Um, and so I was like, I don't know how else to do this. I'm going to have to leave. So yeah, I moved up. I live in Lawrence, Kansas, and I'm done with all my classes. I'm done. Um, And then now it's just finishing this uh, dissertation. So, but I could technically move home during this time. I can be anywhere during this time, but with me not knowing where I'm going to be working and the pandemic and stuff, it's like I'm going to wait to move until I have some kind of insurance of something. So
1: he you know one could argue that the civil war was happening in places like Lawrence Kansas before it was happening nationally
0: if one more person up here tells me about Quantrell's raid or whatever, they were like, welcome to, welcome to Lawrence, Kansas. Do you know about Quantrell's raid? You know, that was burned down and that was burned down and that was burned down. Uh, And do you know that they put people in the ashes in the coffee cans and buried them right there? And if you're still one of the families, you can still have your ashes put in a coffee can in that cemetery right there. It's like, please stop telling me. about this.
1: Oh man. I bet it is bad. Um, you, did you? I mean, it's
0: like the like the zeitgeist here is like, which I appreciate. People are excited about it. Um, I I I do volunteer at the history museum downtown. That's like Lawrence history, and um, I have been helping um, them with their exhibition on the Fifteenth Amendment about voting rights and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But uh, who? Yes, their Civil War. That's um, great lots of civil war here so there's also like the battle the custer's last stand or whatever that battle yeah they have comanche the only american survivor horse stuffed on campus um they make sure and be like it was the only survivor i'm like i think it was the only like non-native survivor you're in- ignoring all the people who won and they took anyway the one horse he survived like to be 38 he loved beer he got shot like a million times got lots of arrow wow. wounds anyway they have his body stuffed and you can go see it. it's like in a closet up there at the natural history museum or whatever so
1: wow wow yeah i yeah, should my i saw um history a documentary about quantrell's raiders uh and it comes up in true grit also which we do in arkansas history so that's that's great
0: yeah and lawrence has got a lot of stuff so it's it's a cool town it's very uh, it's a hippie art artsy vibe up here a lot very liberal um which, so I'm, I'm taking my liberal vacation before i go back to the south
1: there you go <laughs> like, i guess the abolitionist won out it sounds like good for them
0: (laughs) they're all about john brown up here too and i'm like that's a questionable history but everything's named after him there's like murals and stuff so
1: that is interesting
0: yeah and
1: that guy was (laughs) yeah anyway well all right rachel well thanks again um i'll tag you. you over in this when i get it uploaded and definitely let me know when you finish your dissertation hopefully we can talk again
0: super sounds good
1: all right have a great day
0: Thanks. You as well. See you. Bye.